So we are in the book of James. The series is called Fully His, and that's because James uh, was so transformed by seeing his half-brother, Jesus, raised from the dead that he wanted everybody that uh, he communicated with to be absolutely clear that it's all for Jesus. It's about your life being utterly and completely and totally transformed, and uh, following Jesus is not kind of a a part-time project. And so James is really a passionate uh, writer. Now, coincidentally, we've come to James 3 where he's going to talk about the tongue, about our speech. And coincidentally, this is a total accident, uh, today, if you check the church calendar, uh, not our church, like the church calendar, today is Pentecost Sunday. So, uh, Pentecost is an interesting kind of phenomena, if you like. It's an interesting moment in the history of God's purposes in the world. If we Uh, just go back to the Old Testament just for two key things, two highlights, and then just make, hopefully make sense of Pentecost. Then we can get back to James and uh, carry on with the series. Okay, so in the Old Testament, you've got a world full of people that are rebelling against God, all right? There's just this massive rebellion going from what we saw on the screen, which was a little bit like that, Uh, the rebellion in the garden, and you've got a world with all these people rebelling against God, and God told them to spread out and fill the earth, and instead they came together and they said, we're going to work together and we're going to do our own thing and we're going to be great. And God said, no, you're not. And so back in Genesis chapter 11, uh, we read the story of the Tower of Babel. That's the point where all these people had come together and God did something to achieve his purposes. God took the initiative, he made it happen, and he confused their speech. Suddenly, one speaking Italian and one French and one, you know, Hebrew. They're all confused. They weren't speaking those three languages, but they were all confused. And so they dispersed and filled the earth, which is what God intended. Fast forward a few hundred years, and God has chosen a person. And from that person, he's made a nation because he is at work doing something, bringing transformation. And there out in the wilderness, God told them to build this tent. It's called a tabernacle. And he was going to dwell, he was going to live right in the midst of these people who were his people. And so when they built the tabernacle, which later on was replaced with the temple, same thing happened then as well. Uh, When when they built the tabernacle, there was this fire that came down from heaven, just like on top of it. And they knew, right, now God is in there. Here we are in a fallen world with all the sin and all the badness and all the evil, and God has done something, and now God is in the midst of his people. Okay, so keep those two thoughts in mind. The Tower of Babel, the confusing of their languages, their tongues, and then the tabernacle, the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. God doing something. Fast forward to Pentecost, just a few weeks after Jesus had come, uh, had been on earth and had left. Jesus had come, sent from his Father in heaven. He'd gone to the cross. He died to pay the penalty for sin. He'd risen from the dead. And then after a few weeks of kind of being seen and and meeting his half-brother and, you know, Peter and all those people, lots of people saw him. Then he said to his disciples, his followers, right, you stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on you in power, and then you will be my witnesses throughout the earth. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and uh, just over a week later, it was Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast. And that morning, as they were gathered together, suddenly fire came from heaven on top of them, 
and they started to speak different languages. But now the different languages communicated, and this gathering of Jews that were there for Pentecost could hear the message of Jesus, the message of hope, in their own language. And so instead of the languages being confused, now the languages were bringing people together. And now instead of God's presence being in a tent or in a building, his presence would be in people like us. That's the significance of Pentecost. It's God's initiative, it's God's work starting this thing we called the church and and spreading the message around the world. And so here we are, a few thousand miles away, a couple of thousand years later, sitting here thinking about how do we speak? All because of God's initiative, because of Pentecost, because of Jesus, we're all part of that same story. So we come to James, and James, remember, is the first letter written in the New Testament, the first document. Feel free to grab a Bible, there's a few dotted around. It's the first document that was written. And James, like I've said, he's very practical, but he's really passionate that he wants people to really follow Jesus, to be fully, fully his. And so here we are in in chapter 3, and he's kind of moving on in what he's been saying. So far he said he, he really wants Christians to mature, to grow. And we mature based on the response that we have to suffering, which includes our prayer to God to give us wisdom. We saw that in chapter 1. We mature uh, by our response to God's Word, where God shows us what we're like. And as we respond to God's Word and as we pray in response to suffering, we mature and we develop. And that shows fruit in how we interact with others and welcome guests and all that kind of stuff. And now we come to chapter 3, and basically James is really going to point to the fact that maturity is going to manifest itself in the way we speak. A mature Christian will be evident by how they speak. An immature Christian will be evident by the way they speak. The words that come out of our mouths show what kind of people we are. In fact, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 12, out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. It's like the tongue is a spiritual thermometer. The tongue gives you a sense of the spiritual warmth of the heart of the person that's speaking. It indicates, it reveals what's going on inside. Back in chapter one, remember James made the comment, uh, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And we looked at that and we thought about how that is an encouragement for the mature because immaturity doesn't show itself that way, right? Immaturity will always show itself uh, in being quick to speak, slow to listen, very quick to flare up and get defensive, but maturity has a, a calmness, a receptivity to it. Now, when we get to chapter three, James is going to give us really the, the longest sustained discussion of human speech that I can think of anywhere in the Bible. Okay, it's very uh, significant. And what he's saying in this section is that your words, my words, our words are so powerful, both in, in terms of what they can do, good and bad, but also in terms of what they reveal. Let me read uh, to you James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. I think this is on page, what, 10, 12, something like that? Page 1012 in in the Black Bibles there. 
Let me just read it straight through and then we'll, we'll walk our way through it and make sense of it after. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's just like one thing after another, isn't it? It just comes one image after another, really trying to get across how powerful the human tongue is, the words that we speak. At the beginning of the passage, if we just kind of work our way through it, verses 1 and 2, he says, it is very difficult to tame it. He starts off actually pointing to the teachers. And uh, any of us who preach probably are aware of James 3 verse 1. It's quite a scary verse. Uh, Not many of you should presume to be teachers because there's going to be a greater judgment, a more strict judgment. By the way, that would apply to people teaching in kids' club and in the tots and in uh, life group during the week. So actually, it affects quite a lot of us. And I think the purpose of him saying that is because of, of all the kind of church functions that relate to speaking, it's the people who preach and speak that are kind of right at the forefront of that. And he's saying, hey, look, I'm going to talk about the tongue and how powerful the tongue is and how influential the tongue is. Be careful, especially teachers. But he's not just writing to teachers. Notice in verse 2, he says, all, we all, we all struggle. He includes himself. He's not there. He's not arrived. He's, he's saying, look, all of us, whether we're teachers or not, whether we're apostles or not, whether we're related to Jesus or not, all of us, as in, you know, human related, all of us struggle with our speech. And that's what he's going to talk about. He's going to say, look, we need to master it. But ultimately, he's going to say further down the passage, nobody can do it. So by the way, this is ultimately a negative message unless there's something else coming. Because if, if all it's saying is we've got to fix the way we speak, we're in trouble because we just read it and he said, no one can tame the tongue. So what can we do? Well, I promise by the end that there is hope. But 
But let's feel the force of what he says. Nobody can tame it. It's very difficult to control. Then he says from verses 3 to 8, it's disproportionately powerful. Disproportionate as in its size in reference to its power. So uh, if you study human anatomy, for example, uh, you might discover that the quadriceps or the back muscles are the biggest and strongest muscles in the body as you know, compared to some of the finer movement little muscles that we have or the ones that, that affect our smile or whatever. Uh, quadriceps are really powerful, but they're nothing compared to the tongue. The tongue, by the way, is actually eight muscles, you'll be glad to know. Four of them are connected to the bottom of our mouth, and uh, the human tongue is on average four inches long. just thought you'd like to know that. Here's something you probably don't want to know. The blue whale has a a tongue that weighs more than our combined body weight in this room, 425 stone. That puts us into perspective, doesn't it? And so if this message was to blue whales, it would be confusing to them. They'd be like, what are you talking about? My tongue is huge. All right, but, but we're not blue whales. We're humans. We've got these little tongues. But ours are powerful. In Proverbs, it says that life and death is in the power of the tongue. Proverbs eighteen twenty one, Life and death. Based on things people say, people commit suicide. Based on things people say, people commit murder. Based on things people say, people achieve great things. The tongue is incredibly powerful. And so James gives a whole uh, set of illustrations of that. First of all, positively, uh, he gives us the example of a horse and says, look, you want to see the power of something small? Think about that little bit of metal that you stick into a horse's mouth. It's just tiny. It's this size compared to the force of a, a huge horse. But with that, you can turn the horse and you can direct it wherever you want it to go. He says, think about a ship. The huge ship is turned by a rudder. I was on uh, the OM ship, a missionary ship, um, that a few years ago, 10 years ago, I was visiting it, just over 10, and we were in Antigua. And that's, you know, tough life, isn't it? And so we were in Antigua, and I kind of got used to the view out of the few windows that we had. The ship now has got a lot more windows. Elliot has got much better views. Uh, But we had nice views of Antigua out of these little porthole things that we had uh, on the ship that I was on. And so One morning, I came out of my cabin, and I came up to the point where I could look through, expecting to see, you know, Caribbean beauty, and I saw white wall, just white metal. I thought, where am I? I'm confused. So I went outside, and and there was a ship that had come in during the night and berthed just across the pier from where we were. This ship was vast. I mean, it was like, oh... We just kept looking up and up. I mean, it just as far as you could see in every direction, it was one of those monster kind of princess Caribbean of the seas, whatever. It was massive. Hundreds of thousands of tons of metal. And the doors opened, and all these, I think Americans, I don't want to be racist, but all these tourists came out, you know, with their cigars and their Panama hats and whatever. And they kept coming out like a flood, just thousands of them. All morning it took them to evacuate this thing so they could go shopping. And then that evening they all poured back in and then next day it was gone. One of the privileges of being at at sea is that once in a while you get to see a dry dock. 
A dry dock is where you take a ship like that and, and sail it into this dock, close the gates, a bit like a lock on the canal, and then let the water out. Don't ask me how they get the water out, but they let the water out, and then this ship is just sat there, just balanced on these things, these blocks. And then you see the vastness of, of a ship. It's just immense, the hundreds of thousands of tons of steel. And the size of the engines, you, you, you learn about the horsepower and so on. But the thing that is always fascinating is the rudder. Because you can have the biggest ship that you could ever possibly imagine. And when you see the rudder, you always go, oh, is that it? Just really, just a piece of metal. And that can direct that entire ship. And that's James's point. No matter how big of a ship you can imagine, the rudder is tiny in comparison. It's really, really tiny piece of metal, but that thing directs everything. And so he's saying, okay, look, you look at horses, you look at ships, the tongue is powerful, and these are good things, right? You want your ship to go somewhere, you want your horse to go somewhere. And so at the, or the midpoint of verse 5, he says the tongue can make great boasts. And I don't think he's being negative there. I think he's just saying the tongue can rightly boast that it is really powerful. It is. It's absolutely huge in its influence. And that can be used positively, but it can also be used negatively. And so from the next verse, or halfway through verse 5, and on, just look at it. He says the tongue is like a, a fire, like a, a little spark, a little uh, cigarette that's dropped in a forest. It's just a tiny thing, but it becomes a huge, overwhelming forest fire. He, he talks about it. He says, look, the tongue is, is, is on fire. It's set on fire by hell. I mean, this is harsh stuff. It's a, a world of unrighteousness. He, he says that... Um, Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, tamed as in the sense of being a pet. You may have noticed it doesn't work to have, like, a pet hyena, right? They're not too petty, right? That said, you don't want to have one. We did have a neighbor, actually... Uh, when we lived in Italy, a block of flats, two-bedroom uh, two flats, walk, walking down the stairs one day, I looked down the stairs, and there was a cat, and they were stroking it, and I was like, that's a very big cat. turned out to be a tiger. And so our neighbors down on the first floor, who were slightly mad, and I could tell you several stories, had a pet tiger in a two-bedroom flat. Imagine that, you'd knock on the door, and they open it, and there's this tiger stood there. And apparently they kept it for about two years in this tiny apartment. Eventually it was... Uh, I hope the police or someone got involved and they took it away. And it was still tamed in the sense of being behind bars in a zoo somewhere safely in, in Italy, away from my family. But all animals, ultimately, we can control them. Whether we you know, feed them treats for you know, clapping or whether we keep them behind bars, animals don't win against us. But no one can control the tongue. No one is able to get total control so that everything we say is always absolutely perfect. The tongue is incredibly powerful, both, both positively and negatively. Just think about the influence of other people's words on you. 
I guarantee that it doesn't take long for something to come to mind, something that somebody said. Maybe it was somebody who believed in you, somebody who saw the potential in you as a young person and, and asked you questions and encouraged you and said, hang in there and you know, I'm praying for you and all that kind of stuff. And, and it may be that the words of somebody carried you through uh, the, the transitions in life. But I, I also suspect in a room like this, there'd be quite a number of us whose minds go back to things that were said that hurt. Things about how we look or how smart we are or what our life will amount to. And it can just be a throwaway comment, can't it, in a moment of anger, but it's from someone like a father who's supposed to be building you up and in that moment they've pierced you with a spear that that you still feel. The scar is still there. You remember that old nonsense about sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? That's rubbish. That's absolute rubbish. You can break a bone and it heals. But some of the things that people say will stick inside us like barbs for the rest of our lives. The tongue is powerful. We know that from our own experience. Therefore, think about the potential influence that we can have. Think about the good that can be done if you're a mom or a dad to tell your daughter that she's beautiful, to tell your son that he's strong, to to tell your children that their their life counts for something and to tell them that that God loves them and made them for a reason. The, The tongue is powerful. Just think of the potential for us as a community to be a a community of God's people who encourage one another and pray for one another and tell one another things that are helpful and building up instead of gossiping and backbiting and criticizing and tearing down, going up to people and telling them how much they mean to us or what a a blessing they are to us or how much we're, we're praying for them. We have so much power. And think about that in the context of a sinful world with all the nasty stuff that's being said where people don't know if they're being told the truth or a lie at any given moment. It's a world where words are meaningless but still powerful. What difference we can make as a community if we can speak in a way that is pleasing to God, speaking words that give life and build up instead of destroying and tearing down. There's massive potential because the tongue is so powerful so it's not all bad news. But when you get to verses 9 to 12, it kind of feels like it. Because after all that James has said from verses 3 to 8, all these kind of examples, the poison, the fire, hell, you know, all that stuff, then he gets to the kind of conclusion of this section, and he just seems to be scratching his head. He seems to be saying, I don't get what the deal is with speech from Christians. I don't get what's going on. Let me point us to those verses again. He says, look, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. That's not supposed to be that way. But then he he points to nature, verses 11 and 12, and he says, this is really weird. If you've got a spring of water, it's either fresh or it's bitter, right? It doesn't give you both. You don't press one button for fresh and then the other button for bitter. That's not the way springs work. It's not like Coke and 7-Up, you know. And then he says, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? The answer is no, obviously not. 
you plant an apple tree, you're not going to get a harvest of kiwis. You know, try as hard as you want. I just speak to Ben. He's the expert. He's a farmer. He'll tell you that. You plant one thing, that's what you get. If, you, if, if something is a something tree, then it's the some things that come from it, right? And if something is a, a spring of fresh water, it's not suddenly going to be seawater pumping out of it. And yet, James says, and yet, for us, we praise God and we curse people. It's like he's saying, don't you get how weird that is? Don't you get how that makes no sense? You know, praise the Lord, you know, come praise and glorify the Lord on Sunday, and then Monday, oh yeah, but would you believe what he said? And did you know? And we can go into this kind of mode of criticism and tearing down and and, and destructive speech so easily, and then music comes on and we go, oh, I love this song, praise God. And we we just keep switching, and, and James is kind of scratching his head and going, this is crazy. All the potential, all that could be done, but we're so inconsistent. The tongue is so inconsistent. In fact, look back at verse, uh, where is it? Verse eight, no human being can tame the tongue. It's kind of hopeless, isn't it? Yeah, we know the power of it. We felt the force of it. We long to use it well. But what do we do? He seems to be saying tame it, but in the passage, he's saying you can't. So what's the point of the passage? This, this was actually a bit of a struggle for me. As I was studying this, I was, Sunday was kind of coming a bit quick this week, and preachers know what I mean by that. You know, it's like, uh-oh, I can feel labor setting in, and I'm not quite ready. For, you know, the nursery's not painted. It's that kind of idea on a slightly lower scale, right, for a preacher. It's like, okay, something's got to come out soon, but I'm not quite sure what it is. And I had that feeling with this passage because I was like, well, what's he saying? I get what he's saying, it's clear what he's saying, but it's not clear what he's saying. All right? He's just saying that the tongue's powerful. Is it just a warning? Is it, is it just a mm-hmm passage? I mean, what's the instruction? Where's the, 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 the thing we're supposed to do? In fact, uh, I printed this out. If, if we go, because I stepped back, I said, okay, this passage isn't dealing with it. Uh, it's not telling me what to do. So I stepped back and said, okay, what does James say about speech in the whole letter? He says quite a lot. Let me uh, just remind you. I won't give you all the references and stuff, but uh, James is saying, what are we supposed to do? Ready? Ask God for wisdom in suffering. Boast only in our exaltation in Christ or in our humiliation in the world. Never accuse God of seeking your harm. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. That's just chapter one. Chapter two, he says, be consistent in speaking to the poor and the rich. Uh, speak in the consciousness of final judgment. Never speak without following through. That's chapter two. Chapter three, never claim a reality that you do not experience, as in lying. Uh, chapter four, resist quarrelsome words as marks of a bad heart. Never speak evil of another person. Never boast in what you will accomplish. Always speak as one who is subject to the providence of God. That's chapter four, and he keeps going. In chapter five, he tells us, never grumble, knowing that the judge is at the door. Never allow anything but total integrity in your speech. Speak to God in prayer whenever you suffer. Sing praises to God whenever you are cheerful. Ask for the prayers of others when you are sick. 
Confess it whenever you have failed. Pray for one another when you are together with others who are in need and speak words of restoration when you see somebody wandering. Thanks, James. That's 20 instructions for how we should speak. But it doesn't tell us how to tame the tongue. It doesn't tell us how to overcome that great inconsistency that is so weird and contrary to nature that we can both bless and curse with our mouths. In, in the beginning of the message, I said that our tongue is eight muscles, four of which are connected to the bottom of our mouths. Spiritually, I would say that our tongue is a muscle connected directly to our hearts. That's what Jesus said, right? Out of the overflow or the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out here reflects what's going on in here. In Proverbs, let me just read you a proverb here, 4 verse 24. He says, uh, this is probably Solomon, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Okay, put it away. But the verse before and it's interesting how closely these two are tied, is verse 23, which says, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, this is like the most important thing I'm ever going to tell you, Solomon, the wisest man ever, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, or here, for from it flow the springs of life. Your heart, next verse, your tongue. Your heart words. You see the connection? The tongue is a muscle connected directly to the heart. And so if we're going to make sense of what's going on in what James is saying here, I think ultimately we've got to get back to the big picture of what James is teaching. And his teaching is never get your acts together, sort it out, come on, it's down to you. No, what he's saying is God has done something. God has taken the initiative. It is God, just like at Pentecost, it was God that did that and poured out his spirit. It was God that put himself in the midst of his people. And it is God who took the initiative to send Jesus to the cross to die for our sins in order to transform us from the inside out. And so actually, ultimately, uh, the issue that we need to go away with uh, from here today is not, right, I must try harder to speak well. I must try harder not to gossip. I must try harder to watch what I say. Actually, what we need is for God to transform our hearts because a transformed heart will flow more consistently, not perfectly, but consistently with pure speech. I suppose you could put it this way, to truly fix all that the heart can do, God needs to heal, sorry, the tongue, to truly fix what the tongue can do, God needs to heal what the tongue reveals. To truly fix all the, the damage that we can do by the words that we speak, God's got to do something in, in the lower level, at the level of our heart, at the level of what is revealed by the words that come out from our mouths. God's got to do something there. He's got to bring a change there. Back in Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet about 700 years before Jesus. And he was, I think, a good man, a godly man, but he was brought into the presence of God. He got to kind of be there in, in heaven. 
And there in the presence of God, he could see God on the throne. He could see the holiness, the angels. He could hear it all. The first thing that he said in the presence of God's glorious, loving holiness was what? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. If Jesus walked into the room right now, if he, if he walked in, we'd be flat on our faces. And, and our first, one of our first thoughts would be, oh, the things I've said. How dirty am I? And we'd have that awareness that Isaiah had. But don't forget what happened next. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And then one of the angels came with tongs and brought a coal from the altar, burning coal, and seared the lips of the prophet and said, right, now your sin is dealt with. Not saying that we should go home and burn our lips on the barbecue. That's not a good idea. But it's, it's saying that it's the altar, it's the sacrifice that God makes, that God can then come and deal with the problems in us. And so the whole new covenant, all the promises that God planned when Jesus had the the bread and the wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He was talking about God's great plan to deal with our sin, that our sins might be forgiven, that our hearts would be transformed, that the spirit of God would be restored within us so that we can have relationship with God and it can flow out, uh, the love of God flowing out from us, flowing from our mouths and the things that we say. It's all part of God's plan. And it's not a get yourself fixed kind of plan. It's a you can't do it. No man can tame the tongue, but I'll take care of it. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that when Jesus came and he went to the cross, during that judgment, all those trials before, how many times it says he just stayed silent. All all the speech, all the aggression, all the nastiness of that moment, and and Jesus just was silent, like a sheep before the shearers is silent, Isaiah described it as. He didn't need to speak at that point. He'd come to deal with sin. And him speaking wasn't going to deal with it. Him going to the cross was going to deal with it. And so as we go out from here today, let's go out with a, maybe a, 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 a what do you call it, a flare gone off in our hearts. Like a warning uh, up in the air, a big firework with a loud bang to get our attention that our speech matters. The way we talk to one another and about one another really matters. But let's not go away thinking that we can fix it. Let's not go away with a a new Sunday's resolution. This week, I'm going to have perfect speech. I hope that goes well, but that's not going to work. Instead, let's go away with Jesus big in our eyes. With the cross before us, thinking of how he had to die in order to win our hearts, in order to pay for our sin, so that we, gradually, as we mature, can not only have a purified speech ourselves, but gradually we can have more life-giving speech for the benefit of others. That gradually, as God works in us, changing and cleansing and transforming us, gradually we will become more encouraging and more caring and more careful And the speech that we share with one another will set our community apart as the body of Christ 
different, compellingly, attractively different from the world around us. Not because we can get there, but because he has done it all on the cross.